I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. My name's Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist, physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. And I'm absolutely delighted to be back in the studio virtually recording with my friend and colleague, Sharon Bessel. Sharon, how are you? Hi, Anna Greta. I'm really well and am so delighted that we are back on the pod. I've really missed this over summer and, and last week's episode was great. I probably should not get ahead of myself and perhaps introduce myself. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School here at the ANU, and I'm Director of the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre and also the Children's Policy Centre. And of course, last week we were talking about lowering the voting age, so something that, that I have a real interest in. And um, and undergraduate, that was a really great episode, I think, really interesting. It was a fantastic way to start the the year and the regular listeners will know that we do enjoy a mini-series, a deep immersion into a particular topic and I think we're planning to move into our first mini-series in March. But the tasting plate that's on offer we for our listeners through February is just a wonderful, great group of uh, people to interview and last week could, we couldn't have started with a better discussion so it was a really great time. Um, and we have had some lovely messages from our listeners and thank you so much for those providing feedback we're always interested to hear the good and the bad from our listeners about whether you enjoyed the the discussion and the ways in which we can improve or, or develop our conversation into the future so policy forum pod is produced by policyforum.net we're based at the crawford school of public policy at the australian national university the Crawford School offers graduate degrees in executive education programs, particularly in public policy, applied economics, environmental management, national security, and much, much more. If you're interested, you can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study to find out. So on to today's podcast. Anna Greta, I know that we're going to be talking about a topic that you are absolutely passionate about that has shaped your, your professional career. And let me, let me start by asking our listeners about that feeling that you get when you're not being listened to. And when that happens, it's never a great feeling. It can make you feel disempowered. It can make you feel frustrated. It can make you feel like you're not being valued. But when that person who's not listening to you is your doctor, the consequences can be so much worse and, and may even be life-threatening. And Anna Greta, as I think through this, I always think, I always want a doctor like you, someone who really, really listens and really understands others. But I think that we've all had experiences where that hasn't been the case. And our listeners may well know someone who's experienced this or may have experienced it themselves. And if that's the case, chances are you're not alone. Diagnostic error is a major issue in Australia, with research suggesting that around 140,000 people experience it every year. And 
worryingly, terrifyingly, up to 4,000 people die as a result. According to our guests today, improving communication between health professionals and patients may help to address this problem. They've recently published a study that finds, amongst other things, that doctors who spend more time taking medical histories make more accurate diagnoses. So today on the pod, we want to explore what difference communication makes and how healthcare professionals, patients and policymakers can work together to ensure better outcomes. And we have two fantastic guests to talk through these issues with us. Um, and of course, we also have Anna Greta here to, um, to also bring her perspective to this. But Anna Greta, would you like to introduce our guests for today? Yeah, no, I'm very excited about today's conversation, Sharon. As you know, this is an area of real passion for me. So we've got two amazing guests. We've got Mary Darm. Mary's the Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Communication and Healthcare at the Australian National University. She's interested in improving the, cl- the critical diagnostic conversations that clinicians have with patients, from history taking to providing diagnoses, discussing risk, and managing and communicating uncertainty. She combines her passion for patient-centred health research with her interdisciplinary expertise in both qualitative and mixed methods approaches to healthcare communication and health service research. She's also an honorary research fellow at the Centre for Health Systems and Safety Research at Macquarie University. Mary, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Hi. And beside her is Dr. Carmel Crock. Carmel is the Emergency Department Director at the Royal Victorian Iron Ear Hospital. She's Chair of the Quality and Patient Safety Committee of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. She's passionate about reducing diagnostic error. She's an Associate Professor at the University of Melbourne, where she lectures on physician and medical student wellness and its relationship to patient safety. Carmel's also Chair of the Australian and New Zealand Affiliate of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. Welcome, Carmel. It's great to have you with us too. Thank you. And so we're going to talk about the details of your study shortly, but I did want to start by asking you both about this issue of communication in healthcare. As listeners might already know, I'm a practicing cardiologist and I've been very much interested in patient-centred care and healthcare communication over all of my career, now a couple of decades. I've been so interested in it that I applied for a Churchill Fellowship in 2019 looking at narrative in medicine because I see that the stories that our patients bring us is really central to the provision of healthcare that we, we do on a daily basis. But I would love to hear from the two of you. Why is communication so important in healthcare? Who'd like to go first? So if you if you think about healthcare, essentially it's it's an interpersonal connection that happens every time you see a doctor. Um, you need to be able to tell them what from a patient's perspective, you need to be able to tell them why you've come, why that makes you concerned, um, what your hopes are from what you want to get out of the visit that you have. And a lot of these things happen on an interpersonal level. So they're, they're really about the little things that we do with language. How do you um, make yourself heard? How does a doctor um, make themselves appear approachable? How do you establish rapport in a relationship? How do you build up the trust that you actually need for some of the signs and symptoms to come out and for patients to be open and honest? But also for... Um, providing diagnosis and for making uh, treatment and, and management of some diseases really work well. Because if, if a patient doesn't really understand what's wrong with them, or why they need to take a certain medicine or why they need to um, change their diet, 
um, then they're more likely to not do it. So their adherence to any prescribed treatment might be worse off. So communication really just is is embedded in the entire process, and it often is sort of thought of as as a bit of an add-on. It's often called a soft skill, which is a, a word that I, I um, hate. Let's let's just be honest. I hate this word. Um, where where I see it as a much more of a core skill. Like if you can't communicate with your patients or your colleagues, then um, sort of the entire foundation of of doing healthcare well is is gone. Yeah, no, we hear patients comment about this, don't we, that the, the doctor might be technically good at what they were doing, but they weren't able to communicate uh, the issues around it. Um, and I think we do need to take the same level of seriousness for both elements. Carmel, what are your thoughts about communication and why it's so important in healthcare? Look, so many errors that occur in healthcare, when you look back at them, Often they're not really technical errors, but they come down to communication. Almost always communication was involved in medical error. And obviously clinicians, you know, we go to work uh, to do well for patients, to to help patients, not to harm them. So I feel like uh, communication is absolutely critical to good medicine But as Mary said, it's something that's almost been overlooked. I'm embarrassed to say, but as a medical student, you know, when there was a lecture on communication, I'd sort of think, you know, I need to know all the knowledge. You know, I know how to communicate. But as you, the longer you practice in medicine, the more you realise that communication is fundamental to to everything that we do, uh, that just the simple art of listening to a patient, of listening to your colleagues, you know, of being there for them um, uh, genuinely in a communicative aspect is really critical to, to great medicine. Carmel, I've been really fascinated by the work that you've been doing around diagnostic error. And one of the things that really surprised me was that the study of diagnostic error is is really quite new. And where it has been studied so far, a lot of the attention has been on systems issues rather than on these really critical issues of patient-doctor communication. Given the magnitude of the issue, and and as we noted in the introduction, as many as 140,000 people every year experience diagnostic error, why is it that we seem to have missed the importance of of patient-doctor communication? Uh, Look, it's really interesting that 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 first we missed diagnostic error as a subject and then within diagnostic error we we kind of overlooked communication so maybe looking at why we kind of overlooked diagnostic error in the first place i think surgical error procedural error medication error that was more uh, sort of structured and almost easier to look at and diagnostic error was almost overlooked because it was put into the too hard basket um, that that diagnosis is such a complex uh, process that evolves over time. And if you want to measure it and monitor it, well, where do you measure and monitor it from? So that's sort of one of the reasons why diagnostic error was was overlooked, I think. As for why communication was was overlooked within diagnostic error, Again, it might be that it's it's almost put into the too hard basket, like if how are we really going to study this? How are we going to measure it? How are we going to do decent research on the subject? And to me, you know, one of the most biggest rays of sunshine for me has been finding Mary to work with because 
genuinely, I believe that this is groundbreaking some of the work that she's been doing on doctor-patient communication. So, Mary, it might be a great time for perhaps if you'd like to take us through the study. Um, you've done some research into communication and the effect that it has on patients and diagnoses. Can you tell us a little bit about the study and what you found? Sure. Um, so, like Carmel said, there, ha- there has been some research on communication in, in sort of the diagnostic error space to the extent that they found that about 80% of misdiagnoses are caused by, by some sort of communication breakdown or miscommunication. But so far, the, and as Sharon said before, the, the, really the focus point has been on systems and organizational communication. So they've looked at how, how do test results get missed or how do um, X-ray reports that have a finding on them get missed and things like that. But they haven't really looked at the interpersonal. And like Carmel said, it's probably due to be in, in the too hard basket. And it's in the too hard basket because you can't really tell ahead of time when a diagnostic error is going to occur. So it's really hard to gather data in a sense to know what happens differently in communication when, when there is a diagnostic error at the end. So what we did for this project is we, we, t- we took a step back and we used what's so often used in medical education. Um, we used simulated role plays where you have a patient who is an actor. And we had 16 different international doctors uh, who were doing this role play as part of a practice exam to gain their medical ed- accreditation in Australia. So um, they, all these 16 doctors saw the same patient who had a predefined diagnosis. And we could then tell, well, they either got the diagnosis right or they got it wrong. So that meant that we could tell how their communication styles and what they actually said differed um, for the ones that got it right and the ones that got it wrong. So we looked, we looked at uh, various features linguistically. So we looked at how long do they spend on taking history? How long do they spend on actually giving the diagnosis? And we also looked at linguistic structures that they used to deliver the diagnosis. So, for example, were they just giving plain statements like, oh, you have an ear infection? Or did they also include what they were seeing on examination? So, oh, I can see um, your eardrums red and inflamed. You, you have an ear infection. Or did they use a lot of hedges, for example? I think you might have an ear infection. And then what, what impact did that actually have? on um, the communication overall. So um, what we actually found is that the doctors who got the diagnosis wrong spend less time listening to their patient's history and more time actually giving them the diagnosis than the doctors who got it right. So there was about um, a difference of about 30 seconds. So these role plays are time limited. so that you could really sort of find out how much more time did the doctors who got it right spend. And they spent about 30 seconds more on taking history. Um, and they were also more focused and direct in giving their diagnosis, um, where the doctors who got it wrong, so who misdiagnosed, they spent longer in, in delivering the diagnosis. And that was often because they used linguistic features that showed um, some degree of uncertainty. So there were a lot of silences a lot of hesitations. There were a lot of false starts where they started a sentence and then changed their mind and started it again or started it differently. And like I said before, a lot of a lot of the hedges. And and really, what what that tells us is that it, 
it is really exciting because it shows us that the time that you spend on taking a history really is time well spent. And it gives the doctor better information to inform their thinking about the diagnosis and means that they're more likely to get, get the diagnosis right if they spend more time. But it's also interesting, and, and I think for me that was the most interesting finding out of the study, um, was that the doctors who cited observations, who, who said, I can see it's red and inflamed, um, and things like that to support the diagnosis when they talk to the patients. Those were the ones that actually misdiagnosed the patient more often. So it's quite interesting to see. Um, and we were wondering sort of when we were writing it up, are they doing that to not just convince the patient, but also convince themselves? So knowing that doctors who get the diagnosis wrong often use this kind of uncertain language and that they often talk about what they can see on examination to have some supporting evidence for um, giving the diagnosis, but actually can hopefully in the future help us identify the potential of diagnostic errors and, and really in, in that sense help create more awareness among doctors and, and make healthcare safer. Uh, this this use of linguistic analysis to examine the issue of diagnostic error is absolutely fascinating. Carmel, I'm wondering about your experience as a clinician in, in approaching the question of communication through linguistic analysis. How did you find the experience? Uh, look, I've just found it uh, amazing to work together with Mary. I, I did, as I was studying emergency medicine, do a Bachelor of Letters at Monash University and did some linguistics, and I could see how well it, it applied to medicine and it, it needed to be sort of uh, fused with medicine, but I felt like I wasn't able to do it myself. I didn't know how to introduce the study of linguistics into, into diagnosis. So it, it's really been great for me. Um, on a daily basis now, so when I see patients like like you would find, it's it's given me a lot more sort of self-awareness of the type of language I use to patients, um, of cross-checking with a patient whether they've understood uh, what I've said, the diagnosis. It, it's made me much more aware of the language that I use and when I'm hedging and things like that, Mary, too. <laughs> so um, it, it's... You know, this this uh, interdisciplinary work between medicine and other fields, between the humanities and, and medicine, I think uh, it is going to be great work that we do together. Uh, it's really exciting stuff, and I'm so glad to have the two of you with us today to talk about it. We are going to take a short break there, and we'll be back in just one moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world... Democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So welcome back. 
Uh, before the break, we were talking about how important communication is in reducing diagnostic error in medicine, and I'm really interested in exploring this further for patients. I have to mention that my co-host, Sharon Bessel, has lost internet access, and so we don't have Sharon with us for the second half of today's conversation. But I'm really looking forward to continuing to speak with Mary Darm and Carmel Kroc about the, the recent study and investigations they've done looking at, at communication as the central tenet in medical relationships. So you've cited research that up to two-thirds of patients don't even get through their initial statement before a clinician interjects, with some reporting being interrupted after only 11 seconds. Given that sort of an environment, how can patients be more empowered and involved in the diagnostic process? Carmel, I'd love to hear your thoughts as an experienced emergency department physician. How, how, do, we, how do we create the space for our patients to have voice? Look, I think some of the things that we can do are normalising talking about uncertainty to patients, so rather than always projecting confidence. But, you know, when at the end of a consultation, I'll often say, look, this is what I think it might be, but, but I could be wrong. Uh, so introducing uh, elements of uncertainty when we are genuinely are often uncertain. Um, I think we've got to actively ask patients for feedback on diagnosis as well, uh, ask them almost whether that fits them. So, for example, um, Lisa Sanders, an author, says that it's that when we're making a diagnosis with a patient, it's actually like a, a script of a play or a script that we're handing between, passing between doctor and patient until we're both happy with the final product. So rather than us delivering a diagnosis to a patient, I think we've got to kind of, co- without a doubt, co-produce it with the patient and if the patient has any, you know, any doubts or uncertainty, we've got to ask them to to voice that. I think one of the real missing elements in uh, in in medicine and in diagnosis has been making sure that we get the patient voice in there. You know, genuinely asking for for patients whether whether they they agree with the diagnosis, whether they have any concerns about it. The SIDM, the Society to Improve Diagnosis in, in Medicine in the States, has a patient toolkit with some questions that prompt patients to ask the doctor like simple things like what else could it be or what's the worst thing that it could be so that patients need to be invited to ask these questions. Absolutely, and that certainly resonates strongly with my experience as a clinician. I, I do tend to draw on these narrative ideas that, that the patient sets our scene. They bring to us the information, they bring to us the characters and the dynamics that we then work with and we're working together on, on a script that makes sense in someone's life. I'd also love to hear Mary's thoughts on this. How can we make sure that patients have voice and are empowered in the clinical process and the diagnostic process? What, what sort of things can we do better? I, th- I think oftentimes it is, is a bit of a misconception. So if you think of patient-centred care, um, and even, even patient-centred care, that term often is, is misconceived or misunderstood because often um, clinicians or patients sort of think, oh, it means just doing everything the patient wants or giving the patient every information that you can, which also is, is counterproductive if you just dump a whole heap of information on, on patients. But, but in general, having a patient-centered communication style means engaging and really emphatically listening and, and attentively listening and, and signaling that in, in your language and in your actions. So, 
um, listening to a patient when they tell a story and going, mm, and yeah, and, and those little things that you do to keep someone talking, but then also actually following up on what they have said to get the balance right between this sort of meandering idea of do I, do I interrupt now? Um, because I have something to say or do I let them finish? And then I can make a more, holistic statement on everything that the patient has just said. And and the biggest misconception in that realm of patient-centered communication really is that doctors often think it, it will take too long. And all studies that I've read really have shown it does not. It does not really make a consultation longer if you take the time at the start, for example, to set an agenda with the patient together so that you know there's different things that the patient wants to talk about on that particular day. And, and it also helps this, this often uh, phenomenon that, that I don't know if, if Carmel and um, Anna Greta know this, the sort of out of the door. Um, so you, you think you've wrapped up the consultation and the patient then goes, oh, by the way, and then they bring up what their main concern is. So things like patient-centered um, communication styles, really exploring holistically who this patient is, how their illness or how their symptoms affect them in their everyday life and, and really co-producing, like Carmel said, not just a diagnosis, but co-producing with them the entire encounter. Why are you here? What are you hoping to gain? Setting an agenda that really can help give the patient a, a much better chance to even um, voicing what what their really concerns are and, and to have a role, uh, a prominent role in, in this encounter. So this conversation about listening to patients and making sure that we give enough time to the to the whole story, particularly early in the consultation, is one of those things that many of us with experience have always suspected in our clinical practice that it might be important. And yet what you guys have now provided us with, with the research that's been done, is, is proof, is good evidence to say we really should be paying attention to the amount of time that we offer people and the way in which they can bring their story to the table. So the other issue that you've highlighted is cognitive bias and something that you've called the framing effect, where patients can be labelled based on their appearance and their behaviour. It's Again, it's something that we've probably all seen in clinical practice. Carmel, you've worked in an emergency department for a significant part of your career. I'm interested in hearing about what your research shows, but also anecdotally on how big an issue you think this might be, the, the cognitive bias and labelling assumptions that we make about our patients. Look, I think this is a, a really big issue, not just in medicine, but, it, but in our lives in general. And, you know, cognitive biases are really just the tendencies of, of our mind, our tendencies to, to jump to conclusions and to judge other people, uh, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. And I think it's actually just really important for us to be aware of these tendencies in emergency, it's really, it's our bread and butter to be aware of them actually and, and to be conscious of that. You might see a young person who's agitated and yelling. I remember, you know, as a registrar, a, a guy came in and he was yelling and screaming and aggressive and one of my consultants turned around and said, check his blood sugar. And fortunately, he recognised the man. He knew him and it was the first thing that he thought of, whereas, you know, uh, all of us standing around watching were probably assuming that he was drug affected. Um, and, you know, this is this issue of, of judging patients and, and cognitive bias, you know, it, it's causes diagnostic error. It contributes to diagnostic error. 
and really can contribute to to harm to patients and even to death. So that's why I think it's really important to have some awareness of it. And and I really like what Mary has done by linking study of cognitive bias with language as well. I think that that's an important connection that needs to be made. So I think this is part of the reason why the research that you guys have done is so important, is that you've put an evidence base behind what many of us as clinicians have always suspected, that communication is the central tenant that should be involved in our clinical care and that it needs more prioritisation and more attention in our training, in our education and in our quality review. Given the scale of the issue, and it is fair to say that we're not talking just about a small handful of doctors and nurses who, whose communication doesn't take the right the amount of time, but there is a systemic problem at play. So I'd love to hear from both of you. How can the health system better respond to these issues? Mary, would you like to go first? Um, yeah, I can. I, I think it's it's really tricky to answer that. Um, you you got to see how everyone sort of works within the resources that are given and there might be shortages and so you're always sort of on the back foot as soon as you get into the door, be that in the emergency department or be that in, in primary care as a general practitioner. There's often just not a lot of time. But you also need to look at from a bigger systemic level how how clinicians were trained and how they practice and how practice change on a systems level actually can help overcome some of these issues. So if you think about all the senior clinicians that trained 30, 40, 50 years ago maybe, where where communication really wasn't in the forefront of, of medical education and, and sadly often it's still not today. But they, they are the role models that the new medical students are looking up to. They are how they learn, how to talk. So if, if older clinicians or more experienced clinicians keep using labeling language, if they talk about patients who complain or who are non-compliant or who refuse painkillers or who are failing at their treatment, this is the kind of language that the medical students will pick up because that's how they get socialized into talking about patients and talking with their colleagues. So unless we can really make a cut there and change it there, um, we will be facing this problem for, for a much longer time. And, and I think Carmel has the discussions that I had with, the, with Carmel outside of, of our discussion here always, always also set around what, what medical education and clinical practice does around uncertainty and how that is discussed or often not discussed in clinical practice. Carmel, sometimes those those sorts of criticisms that we use in language to describe clinical scenarios, those words like non-compliance or the, the treatment failure, uh, I feel like it's a transfer of responsibility. It's not our fault as the doctor, but we're transferring responsibility elsewhere rather than going through those journeys as a shared, as a team often with our patients. So what are your thoughts on how the health system can better respond to these issues? Look, there's a few things that I, I think we could do in medicine to improve the situation. Um, one of them is normalising getting feedback on diagnosis from patients, so inviting patients to give us feedback, um, let us know if the diagnosis has, has evolved, has changed. I think accessing expertise, like normalising that. So in a department, you know, if I'm seeing a patient, I'll often say to them, look, I'm just going to go and get one of my colleagues to come in and give give an opinion. And the junior doctors see me doing that and that it's it's completely normalised in our department. And the third thing is what Mary was saying, which was 
normalizing discussing uh, medical error, discussing uncertainty with patients. I think that they're some of the really key things to me. Absolutely. And so maybe the next question for both of you is around medical education and training institutions. So the College of Emergency Medicine or the College of Physicians that I'm part of or the College of General Practice or medical schools at universities like the Australian National University or University of Melbourne. What role can we play in medical education and training to to improve this? I think fundamentally, um, there needs to be this this change in perception. So communication is not a soft skill. Communication is a core skill. And you need to be aware of of how much communication really affects the way or the results you get in healthcare. So I think that's that's one of the, the starting points. I think a lot of medical education programs have, or medical schools have professional practice streams that talk about sort of ethical behaviors and professional um, professionalism within um, the medical uh, field but they often they miss out on this, all the things that we've discussed here so they they don't look at bias they don't look at uh, communicating uncertainty and and especially about uncertainty really just the way that medical education is set up um, you know how I said we have these uh, what we use for our study, they had these role plays, and oftentimes this is what happens in medical medical education as well. And and the thing about these role plays is they always have a correct answer. There's always a diagnosis at the end. There's never this case of of this um, iterative, time consuming process of diagnosis that that Carmel um, sort of talked about before as well. It is always sort of a, a guided and leads to a goal or an endpoint kind of diagnosis. And this is the type of, of education that the medical students get. So when they then hit the, the ground running and actually start practicing, they are often confronted with all this uncertainty that they've, that they've never really had to confront before and they really don't know what to do about it. So they really need role models that show them that it's, it's normal and uh, within it being normal, how can you communicate it um, to your patient, but also communicate it and acknowledge that this is happening as a normal part of medicine to make yourself feel better? Because a lot of medical students, if they have high intolerance to uncertainty, they often also at a higher risk of burnout later on. So it's it's really quite critical to to change sort of the underlying perception of of how medical education works. Absolutely. And I've wanted to perhaps come, well, if I could get you to perhaps bring in a few of the other issues that I know are extremely pertinent in the health system at the moment. We see uh, concern about mental health and well-being amongst healthcare practitioners, particularly those at the front line in our hospital system. And you've done quite a lot of work around medical practitioner well-being and, and the potential benefits of using kindness as an approach in the healthcare setting. Do you see that the communication, uh, the importance of communication and training people in communication is another imposition and an increase in stress, or could it actually be helpful for the health and well-being of our health workforce? Look, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's it's not an add-on. It's not something more that we need to uh, study, uh, which is which is difficult. It's actually something which will reduce stress uh, if we get our communication right. Um, you know, diagnosing a patient 
especially when there's uncertainty, can be quite a stressful thing. And you're kind of left with this stress after the patient has left, you know, could I have made a mistake or could I've could I be wrong? But if your communication is is open and clear and honest, and if you access some expertise from around you, if you diagnose not as an individual but as a team. So if we re-envision diagnosis not as an individual pursuit but as a team-based thing, you know, the team, the stress is shared by the team and the stress is dissolved by the team. And I think that's one of the most important things that that, that we need to do in medicine is re-envision diagnosis as a team event, not as an individual I absolutely love that message. Now, I will confess I could speak to the two of you about these issues for many, many hours, and I'm so glad that you had time to join us today. But we will need to begin to wrap this up. We often ask our last question through the framework of policy change and what sort of role policymakers might have to play in improving communication in our healthcare sector. So perhaps I could ask you both to think if you if you had the ear of power, if you were uh, in talking to somebody who has strong influence in in how the healthcare system works, what changes would you like us to make? Look, uh, there's a couple of things that I see as being really important. One of them is that we need to fund research into the diagnostic process, how we diagnose, and that includes uh, communication in diagnosis. We really need to to fund research into the humanities in medicine. That, to me, is, is actually critical. The other thing is I don't think that we currently have a really good reporting environment in medicine for discussing, sharing, reporting errors, learning from them. And some of that is probably around our medical liability system, that, that it's almost punitive um, when there's when there's error involved. So I think we need to create a system somehow where we learn from diagnostic errors and near misses in medicine. There are a couple of my thoughts. Uh, no, fantastic suggestions. Mary, what are your thoughts on policy interventions to improve this? I think I can echo what, what Carmel has said. And I'd also think there's, like Carmel's mentioned the US Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine before, um, and they've been a really big driving force in the States to get this on a higher policy plane, where it's now it, they've, they've gone to Washington, they've talked to all the politicians there, they've, they've got big funding and they got, got it on the, on the agenda, basically. So this, I, I think this is the other sort of big part that we need. So it's really important that we can ensure that diagnostic error is, is, is an agenda point for quality and safety in healthcare in Australia. So one of the things that might happen in the future is that we, you know how we have national clinical standards after which um, hospitals are accredited. We could have a diagnostic standard. We could see um, how that might play out and what type of policy that might bring as well in terms of changes. But to have such a standard in place, you need to know how the diagnostic process works in Australia because that might might often be different than, than in the States depending because of the way that their medical systems are set up, but also um, how or where the pitfalls are and how the communication works so that you actually know what the what the different factors are that you would need to include in a in a quality standard around diagnosis. So there's still a lot of work to do and and really like Carl said, having the funding to actually do all the work is is sort of the first stepping stone. 
Could I add also, Mary, to what you're saying? I'd really love to see in Australia patients having ready access to their medical records, to all their test results, um, to be able to read their records, to comment to their doctors, you know, and, and as I said before, you know, ready access to, to a second opinions. Fantastic suggestions from the two of you. And I, I'd like to take the host prerogative and make a few final comments from my perspective. Flipping it back to the theme that runs through a lot of our policy forum podcasts, which is that of valuing care. When patients come to hospitals or when any of us are seeking medical advice or medical attention, what we're really often hoping for is advice and discussion that either improves our quality of life or our life expectancy. And so we can frame our conversations quite explicitly through one or the other of those things. What we do perhaps see more commonly in the health system as it stands today is a whole series of tests and procedures, interventions that have skipped some of those vital early conversations around what matters to people, what the patient brings to the table, what are the priorities for the person in front of us. And so if our primary work in the healthcare sector is around making our patients' lives as good as possible, then the communication has to take a central role. So I, I thank both Mary Darm and Carmel Crock for today's conversation. It was so good having the two of you with us today. And I'm so impressed about the study that you've managed to perform showing us the tremendous benefits of good central communication in the healthcare system. Thank you both. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So, listeners, I found that an extraordinary conversation. I'm so grateful that this research has been done. As I mentioned, I think in the healthcare sector, many of us recognise the core importance of communication, of knowing who our patients are, of understanding their story and helping to, to craft that healthcare experience, often over many months, years, or even decades. It's one of the most extraordinary privileges of life as a doctor. And yet proving the benefit through uh, good quality research, um, these guys are, are breaking new ground. And so I'm so, so, so proud of the research that's been done. And I found that conversation was deeply inspiring for the ways in which we can see our healthcare sector improve in the years ahead, I also suspect that there are lessons in core communication that can be shared across other areas of, of our lives, whether, whether that be in education or whether that's in, in government or in many of the other policy areas that we might find ourselves interested in. So we will leave a link to the studies that have been mentioned in the show notes. I know that there are many medical organisations and uh, healthcare-focused organisations that are particularly interested in this, and there's some studies and conferences that are underway this year that will take these themes and continue to run with them. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our second episode of 2022. As we mentioned in the introduction, we've received some fantastic correspondence over the last few weeks about the pod. We do love hearing from you, so please do continue to reach out with your feedback and ideas for future episodes. Please also join us on social media wherever you feel comfortable. We're on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. You can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. And we have a Facebook group. If you type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar on Facebook, you can join into a, a robust discussion. We'd love you to subscribe to our podcast and to leave a review on whichever platform you pod with. And we will be back next week, hopefully the two of us in the one technological world. So for now, from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.